Today we're going to complete our examination of the problem of temptation. You know, it amazes me the number of so-called experts that write or teach or lecture and counsel on the subject of human sexuality. Uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite stories, and I think you'll appreciate it. Um, it was about a woman whose uh, little boy had a problem stuck in his thumb. And uh, some of you may, may remember this, but uh, this little boy had a problem stuck in his thumb, and no matter what she did, she just couldn't break him of the habit. And she tried everything, you know, she tried putting stuff on it so that it burned when he sucked it. She tried positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement. She tried everything, and nothing seemed to be working. And moms, you know, when your children have a bad habit, sometimes you just get desperate and you do silly things. And uh, one day they were out, and a rather large person, a very obese person, actually came into a room. And, and, her, and her mom, this little boy's mom whispered to him and said, you see that? That's what happens if you keep sucking your thumb. And, uh, you know, not exactly the smartest thing to say, and she found that out. So not too, too long from then, uh, they were in a store together. And uh, they were in a, uh, I guess it was a grocery store, and, and what had happened was there was a woman who was ready at any moment to give birth. She was a very pregnant woman. And uh, this little boy was just staring at her in wonderment. And uh, finally it got to the point where it annoyed her so much, this woman looked down at the little boy and said, little boy, please, you know, please quit staring at me like that. That's not nice. And besides that, you don't even know me. And the little boy looked up and said to her, yeah, but, but, but I know what you've been doing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a little bit of confusion out there. I like this cartoon. Somebody handed me a cartoon. There's a, a guy sitting on the couch or on the, actually, it's a, probably a, a, a lazy boy chair with a remote control kind of like this in his hand. And uh, the TV sets in front of him and it says, Men who sleep with daughters of their mother-in-law, next on Geraldo. <laughs> yet, yet, it's early. Some of you don't. It's men who sleep with their wives. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Just wanted to make sure that everyone's on the same page here this morning. It was. A, it was. It was. A, you know. It was, a, it was a little thought-provoking. I understand that, but it's going to get. It's going to get a lot deeper than that. Trust me, as we go through this. So, just want to try to get you going here. It's not often that you could uh, take an article out of the uh, editorial section of one of our local newspapers and actually use it in this context, uh, but I actually found one not too long ago uh, written by a, a, a gal named Diane Klein, and it was in the LA Times, and uh, she wrote, and here's the, uh, the headline of this particular column that she wrote, Spur Posse Ushers Out Innocence. They call themselves the Spur Posse, and they are studs. Eight of them used to be called alleged rapists, juvenile alleged rapists, but that's been all but dropped. Only a single charge of lewd conduct against one of the boys remains. Most of the Spurs go to Lakewood High School, but you probably already know that, for their sexual exploits, what used to be felony assaults, are now national news. She goes on to explain what the problem was, and she said, one hookup equals a point, no girl may count twice. Those are the rules. The way things are going, maybe somebody's already working on a new game show for syndication later on. The score to beat, well, how about Will Chamberlain's 20,000? To the Spurs, I guess, Will's a super stud. And naturally, the points are trash. The highest reported spur total is 66, but this 19-year-old would like to make further comment on that. He's been telling everyone who will write it down that his score would be even higher if it weren't for his girlfriend who's always hanging on his arm. This means that he loves her, I guess. Um, oh, and this young man buys his condoms at Price Club in the econo size. This, I imagine, is supposed to mean that he's a responsible person, the kind of guy who knows how to shop. The parents of these teenagers have been quoted widely in the press. One father boasted of the virile specimens he has for sons. Another shrugged off the scoring as something that boys have always done. 
A spur mother found it sad that the girls have such low self-esteem that they would do this. What about her son? Oh, it's a testosterone thing, says the mom. Hey, will someone please call time out? Or if that doesn't work, how about lining up all those people in front of a fire hose? Forget all this, oh well, blather about a 90 sexual revolution, a youthful revolt against the prudish and cautious in the age of, age of AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases. What is happening at Lakewood High and who knows where else is sexual pollution and it smells. Naturally, among those who really do get it, there has been a considerable amount of hand-wringing and tisk tisking about family values in decline. Lakewood High is being seen as a symbol of the two are far too lenient times of youth going with the flow even as it casts them adrift. If nothing else, it shows once again that the parental do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do approach has never worked and never will. But what do you do when even parents encourage their kids to, quote, get as much as they can? That is, of course, if they're the parents of the boys. Don't try to figure out this social equation for new math. Double standards never compute, even if they still rule. No, I'm not saying that girls should set up their own scorecards, even things out, as I've heard some teenagers suggest, Regardless of who racks up points, sexual competitors, or should that be sexual predators, are destined to lose. She goes on to say that only it doesn't look that way right now to the Spur Posse. They were the big men on campus before, and these days are literally getting cheered. But not by everyone, of course. Many are angry that the district attorney didn't seem to take the original charges serious enough. Confusion is rife. Were, were girls raped, or were they just angry about being relegated to points? The deputy district attorney assigned to the case while still investigating more serious charges against some of the suspects says maybe she could prove charges of consensual unlawful intercourse with a minor, technically a felony in the eyes of the law. Except, she says, that the district attorney's policy is not to follow charge if the boy and girl of similar age and social experience. We feel that it's better left to the parents and churches and social organizations to handle this issue. But what happens when these pillars of society just throw up their hands? She says, well, then I guess you look to the Spur Posse for a clue. You know, and she's right. And what she has to say makes a lot of sense. In the context in which we're going to speak this morning, she asks the question that you have to ask yourself. What happens when the church and when parents throw up their hands? I'll tell you what happens, and that's exactly what she, she led to, and that is that our youth begin to look around for answers. Why not look to the Spur Posse? But the good news is, here, we're not going to throw up our hands. We're going to take a look at what the Bible has to say. We're going to look for an authority that has something to say in this matter. And why not start with the God who created each one of us, who knows us more intimately than we'll ever know ourselves. And as we look for this intimacy among one another, God has certain rules and standards which he would like us to understand to help us uh, not only to enjoy the sexual uh, desires that he has given us as human beings, but also to give us guidelines in which to constrain those desires in a way that is appropriate before God and also is better for us. And, uh, you know, as she goes through this, she made a, a good point when she said that, you know, sexual competitors or predators are always destined to lose. And we began to look at that last time when we got together, when we started to, to uh, identify some of the consequences of uh, sexual behavior that according to the Bible and we've got to go back to a standard because one of the things that I've noticed in, in, in our society and as I've read uh, several commentaries on the same I uh, just finished reading uh, Bob Vernon's book L.A. Justice and he, he provides some interesting insight into human behavior that he's observed in 40 years of law enforcement in the Los Angeles area and he said that one of the, the dangers that he has seen is the, the progressive deterioration of, of standards and absolutes 
no longer do we have a, a, a common foundation in which we can have a conversation because our absolutes have been thrown out the window. Everything is relative, and what's true is true to you. If it's true to you, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true to me. But, but that's a fallacy in logic, and we can demonstrate it all throughout society. Laws of mathematics and laws of physics are laws that are universal that do not, are not predicated on one's personal belief system. And those same laws and standards which God has enacted throughout the universe are the same moral absolutes that he has for us as far as how we should live our life. And so we need to understand something, that it's not, truth is not relative to what you believe to be true. Truth is truth, and there's absolutes whether you believe it's true or not. And one of the things that we need to understand is that there are moral absolutes, there are laws of the universe, there are moral laws and truths that God has established, and when we violate those, we are subject to the consequences that are to follow. And so as we go through this, we've seen that the consequences of wrong sexual choices, the Bible calls a violation of God's standard of sin, uh, we would call it breaking the law in our society, but the bottom line is that when we break God's moral laws, we can expect certain consequences to follow. We saw the first one was spiritual defeat, that each of us, as we violate standards that are there, whether their ignorance is no excuse under the law. We've heard that before, and it is true of God's laws. Whether you know that they exist or do not know that they exist, a violation of that does not in any way preclude the consequences that are to follow. And so God is no different than the laws that we are used to obeying. First thing is spiritual defeat. As a Christian, when we fall into sexual immorality, it destroys our testimony from a spiritual standpoint. We no longer have the confidence or boldness to be able to, to speak about moral absolutes when we are guilty ourselves of disobeying those same things. If it's wrong for us, then it's wrong for everyone. And if it's wrong for someone else, it certainly is wrong for us. It doesn't make any difference of what your current situation is. And so as we go through this, we also saw that, you know what, a, a, moral, a violation of God's moral laws is an indication of something that's wrong in the heart of the person that violates it. And it indicates that we need help. And we certainly understand that. Number two, and what we started to look at was the second consequence of a sexual sin or a violation of, moral, moral of the God's moral code is that of emotional distress. And we need to recognize that, you know, it's interesting to me, and rightly so, much of our conversation in society has to deal with the area of physical disease, and we'll touch base with that in a minute. But there's also other consequences that we seem for some reason to think aren't that big a deal. These are not in order of any significance whatsoever. They're not in order of any degree of punishment or any degree of difficulty because each of these carries its own degree of difficulty as you will be able to test as we go through this. Emotional distress. There's a, like I said, there's much talk about physical problems, but, you know, as you look at what God calls sexual violations, this, this is conduct that God would say is wrong according to his standards. Rape is wrong. Incest is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Bestiality is wrong. Premarital sex is wrong. Certainly molestation of any kind is wrong. And anyone who has ever experienced that in his or her life realizes what God has to say. And that is that there is tremendous emotional distress that follows any of those behavioral patterns. Any one of them. We suffer if we are guilty of any of those things. What's interesting to me is we've got a whole society that will look and say, man, you know what, we've got a whole bunch of people that's trailing this baggage in their little red wagon from other experiences that they've had in life, particularly in the area of their sexual behavior, and yet God says, hey, this is a natural consequence of it. 
We can speak of the consequences all we want as long as we don't say the Bible predicts that in, a, in 100% accuracy and God has much to say about that. Well, wait a minute. You can talk about the consequences, but just make sure you don't bring up that God has something to do with it or that certainly that the Bible says something about it. You know, it, it's idiotic to me to be able to look at society that's saying, man, you're right. Boy, you know what? Somebody that, that is a victim of rape certainly struggles with the emotional distress, don't they? Absolutely. Somebody that's a victim of incest struggles with emotional damage, don't they? They certainly do. Even a person who is guilty of adultery, they struggle with what they've done and the guilt and all that goes along with it, and they carry that with them in, in the end of their life. All of those things. And we all say, oh, that's so true. Well, do you know that the Bible has much to say about that? Oh, don't bring up this moral thing. Don't bring up the Bibles. Don't bring up God. Well, why not? Well, because we don't have to deal with that, because if we recognize that the Bible has much to say about that, then we'll also have to begin to understand that there must be a God, there must be someone who created the universe, there must be someone who created me, and if he's got moral absolutes and moral standards, we must understand this God better, because we, are answer, we, we have to answer to him, or we're subject to what he has to say. I don't want to hear any of that. I'd rather just go on floundering aimlessly throughout life to drift with all the problems that we have, rather than deal with the solutions. How foolish that is. It's interesting as you go through this emotional distress. 1 Peter 2, 11, Beloved, I beg you, as those who aren't really part of this world, as sojourners and pilgrims who are just passing through, I beg you not to get hung up on things that are here on this earth that are going to wage war, particularly in the area of fleshly lust, with your soul. Don't get hung up on this. You're just passing through. What are you getting hung up on all this, all this stuff for? Because it will wage war with your soul. And what he's saying in, very specifically is that our soul is our personality. Our soul has to do with our emotional makeup and character because he has much to say about the war that will be waged with our physical being. But specifically here in this reference, he's talking about our personality, our emotions, who we are, how God has made us. He said, man, you, if you're guilty of sexual sin, it's going to wage war with your soul, with your emotions, with your personality, with your mind even. It's interesting. Josh McDowell writes in his book, Secret of Loving, Josh McDowell is an advocate of abstinence and has gone on record throughout universities and, and campuses throughout our country and around the world that abstinence is the only cure for the sexual, the sexual immorality of our day. And uh, he writes in his book about a woman who writes to him and says, Josh, I have gone to bed in the last five nights with five different men. Tonight I sit at the edge of the bed and I'm crying and I'm wondering and I ask myself this question, is that all there is to it? Is that all there is? friend of mine, as he was dating his girlfriend on a regular basis, fell into the area of sexual immorality. They were having sex before marriage. And he said, finally, one day, he just jumped out of bed and said, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this. I can't continue to ignore the conviction in my life about doing what's right before God and still trying to please you and please myself. I can't do it. I can't keep living like this. And I appreciated his honesty and his candor as we met together. and said, I can't do it. And the good news to him, as I shared with him, the best news of all is that, you know what, the fact that you are struggling and that you're convicted by it and you can't do it anymore is a, is a good indication that you truly have come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you of what you're doing. Isn't that wonderful news? He's like, well, yeah, I guess I still can't do it anymore. You know, it's the most frustrating thing I've ever been through. And we're going to deal with some of the ways that we can handle this problem in a way that's pleasing to God. Singles, divorced people, you know, the survey that we read last week indicated that, you know, the number of sexual partners for those who are divorced is like double that of everyone else in society. 
And the reality of it is, and I can be sensitive to it, is the fact that as you go through that particular situation in your life, we become very lonely, we become desperate, we look for companionship, and somehow or another we mistake, mistakenly believe that sexual activity with another person is going to fill that need in our life. And all that God says is it creates more problems than it helps you out. But we can be sensitive to it, we can understand it, but it still doesn't make it right. You know, it's interesting, when Jesus to spoke to the woman who was guilty of adultery, you know, what he said to her was, hey, you know what, I can understand you're looking for intimacy, and I can understand that. He didn't say that at all. You know what he said? Hey, you know what, let me tell you one thing. What you're doing is wrong, but I still love you. Stop doing what you're doing. He never in any way said the behavior was right, but yet he continued to love those who were guilty of wrongful behavior, and that's the same God that we have today. We must, not, we must not mistakenly believe that acceptance of an individual means that we must accept wrongful behavior. That's what we have, that, that, that's what we have degenerated to in our society. Somehow or another, we're not open-minded if we don't accept everyone. That's not true at all. We accept every person, but we do not accept wrongful behavior. See, that, that's the problem, isn't it? And that's where we run into difficulties, and that's where the world says we're too narrow-minded, you know, that we're bigoted in some way, that we're prejudicial toward those who are guilty of sin before God. And that's not it at all. We love people. We must always love people. But we must never get to the point of confusing acceptance of people with acceptance of wrongful behavior. And so as we go through this, emotional distress is certainly one of the problems. Number three, and uh, anyone who... who you know, I, there's no other way to put this, but... Anyone who has experienced in their family, nothing ruins a family, nothing ruins a marriage faster than sexual immorality. Nothing. Let me give you some instances and you tell me if it's not true. Adultery. Healthy to a marriage. Rape. Healthy to a family situation. Incest. Healthy to a family situation. Homosexuality, healthy, teenage pregnancy, just bring the family closer together. If you've experienced any of these in your family, you know the emotional, the physical price that's paid by everyone in the family who's directly or indirectly involved. There's a price to be paid. You know, it was interesting, I, I can't get that interview of the woman whose daughter was exploited by the Spur Posse. I, I, for some reason, I continue to see her face, and maybe it's because I, you know, I, I look at myself as a parent in a similar situation, and I wonder how I would respond to it. But as she cried tears of great anguish, recognizing the loss of the innocence of her daughter. You know, family devastation? Absolutely. Without any question about it incest and rape and molestation victims. You know, we read about it on a regular basis. They struggle throughout their lives with the horror of the recollections of things that have happened to them in their youth. Parents and siblings of homosexuals and those who are suffering from physical consequences of wrong sexual behavior know exactly what I'm speaking of. We've got a friend whose brother is dying in an, in an AIDS hospice and the emotional and the physical price that the whole family pays for this person's individual choice to do what he wanted to do. You know, I, you know, what can you say to the person who makes that choice and drags the rest of the family into it? What do you say? What do you do? We love you. 
We accept you, but your behavior was wrong, and now we all pay the price, don't we? Proverbs 6, 27 and 35 deals with the issue of adultery, and here's what Proverbs has to say. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get. And his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury, and also a wife's, I may add. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. Family devastation is certainly an obvious consequence of sexual immorality. But it's interesting, we live in a world that people will say this, Hey man, but it's my choice. Really? It's your choice. How do you tell a family whose son, how do you tell a mother whose son is dying of AIDS? Well, hey, you know what? Just tell him that was his choice. <laughs> She's compelled by the compassion of a mother to continue to love her son and to be available and to nurse him and to love him through what he's going through. See, it's not that easy, is it? You know, how do you tell a daughter who is pregnant outside of marriage and now has been rejected and abandoned by the guy who, who uh, created the situation, who no longer finds her attractive and doesn't love her anymore. How do you tell a daughter who is going through that whole process, well, gee, you know, you made a wrong choice. I guess that's as much as our involvement goes. You don't, do you? How do you tell a child who was guilty of, was a victim of incest or rape? See, whether you like it or not, the decisions that you make as an individual affect every person who loves you and cares about you. It's nothing short of being selfish to say, but it's my life, man, and I'm going to live it the way I want. We need to look a little further beyond what you think will make you happy and look at the consequences that are widespread for wrong decisions. Family devastation is a natural outcome of sexual immorality. Now, obviously, the most talked about consequence is that of physical disease. And the Bible has much to say about it. See, it really doesn't matter. And what's interesting is it really doesn't matter if you're talking about AIDS. It doesn't matter if you're talking about syphilis, gonorrhea, or any kind of venereal disease. The whole world knows and the whole world agrees to this. And that is that sex outside of heterosexual marriage is a serious risk to our physical well-being in addition to all the other things that we just talked about. This is just one more consequence. There isn't anyone that, who believes in God who doesn't believe in God, who believes in the Bible or doesn't believe in the Bible. There isn't anyone who studies this issue that will not agree that those who are having sex outside of monogamous heterosexual relationships are in a risk group. The risk becomes greater and intensifies depending on what behavior is taking place outside of that safe environment. Now, if that isn't fascinating to you, I don't know what is because it certainly is to me. It's amazing to me that two people who are monogamous that are married, uh, male and female, I may add, just in case there's any confusion now with this new marriage thing going around. Uh, you know, it's heterosexual. You used to be able to say, you know, sex within marriage. Well, now everybody's trying to get married, you know, whether they want to get hitched up to their collie or whatever. You know, it's like, 
who knows what's good. But, but, the, but the idea is very simple. Everyone who is monogamous, who is involved in a heterosexual relationship in marriage, has no risk. None. Categorically, no risk. Isn't that fascinating that you could be at a hotel and you could be with your wife or your husband and you could be monogamous and you could be in one room enjoying the blessing that God has given you while somebody next door is doing the exact same thing and being absolute highest risk there as possible because of their sexual behavior. Doesn't that interest you at all or make you wonder? It almost is like maybe, think about this, maybe God is involved in this and maybe God in his miraculous way to intervene in human and human behavior and everything else says, if you do it this way, I will protect you from all of these consequences because you're doing what's right before me. What other, what other answer is there? There is none. But you talk to the world around us, they're trying to find one, but they don't have one, and when you mention that, they don't want to discuss it, Can we talk about something else. Why? We don't want to deal with this. Why not? Because if what God has to say about sex and human sexual behavior is true then maybe what he has to say about heaven and about hell and about judgment is true also. Maybe what he has to say about Jesus being the only way to the Father, that Jesus is the only answer, the only mediator between God and man. Maybe what he has to say about sin, separating us from God, that's true too. Oh, see, we got a problem, don't we? So we don't want to deal with that as a society because the implications are far greater than just our sexual behavior. It's a matter of our eternal destiny as well. See, physical behavior. The Center of Disease Control in Atlanta says that it's at epidemic proportions. It says that all the conversation and discussion about AIDS has, in some ways, put to the background all sexually transmitted diseases that are at epidemic proportions. We well, wear the little red ribbons and all that about AIDS, but man, you know what? The whole world, venereal disease is rampant in our society. And what's fascinating to me is everyone's looking for a cure for it. You know, let's invent something. Let's come up, and you know what? And we should. Some, you know, we should find cures that prevent human suffering because there's a lot of innocent victims as well. We should find cures. We need to find cures. But one of the things we can't, we can't mistakenly believe, and that is if we can just find a pill somehow that we can take, we can continue with wrong sexual behavior because God's not mocked by sin. He says, fine, if I choose to allow someone to discover a cure for AIDS, it's because of the compassion of God and because of the ability that he has to give the human mind the, the understanding to be able to think and discover things. And it's only because of the compassion of God that he does it. But one thing he says is this, hey, just because you find a cure for, for AIDS and you find a cure for syphilis and all the rest of it, hey, you know what, there'll be another sexually transmitted disease that you won't be able to find a cure for. And the reason I'm doing that is because I have to be true to my word. And one of the things you've got to understand is you're dealing with the symptoms all the time. The root problem is you're doing what's wrong. And let me ask you this. Hey, try to find a pill. Penicillin doesn't erase emotional damage, does it? Penicillin doesn't erase family devastation, does it? A pill that we'll find to somehow eliminate the physical consequences of our sexual behavior isn't going to eliminate all the other consequences now, is it? See, so we just deal with those one things. And I think we need to understand with all this gay pride and all the marches that are taking place and all the rest of it, we need to understand what God has to say. And he clearly says that that sexual behavior is an abomination before God. It's listed every, every place you can list in the Bible. It's listed uh, along with rape and incest and fornication 
it's listed among all the rest of the heinous uh, sexual behaviors that do not please God. There's nothing pleasing at all about homosexuality to our God. He hasn't changed. His standards hasn't changed, and he's not going to, regardless of whether 50 million people march on Washington, D.C. It doesn't matter. God's not swayed by the popular vote. You know, you know the irony of all of this? Uh, you know, you pick up the newspaper, and, and here in Orange County Register, Metro section, on uh, April 6th, teens are told that they're not immune to AIDS. And so here they are, they're at a convention in Anaheim, and they're talking about um, AIDS, and they're talking about the, the uh, epidemic that's occurring and everything that's involved with it, and how teenagers are affected by it. And officials with State of Office on AIDS said about 10,000 people who, are not, who now have AIDS were infected as teenagers. And so you go through it. Well... <laughs> The interesting thing is, right next to it is a column about how we should accept, accept the gay lifestyle. Now, are we like brain dead stupid or what? It's like, on one hand, hey, this is a high risk group. On the other hand, you know, we need to be accepting of this particular lifestyle. No, we don't. We need to be accepting of the people who are in that lifestyle, but we need to make sure they continue to realize that the lifestyle they have chosen is wrong because God says it is, because the consequences, the evidence is overwhelmingly against it, and because it's not natural according to the laws of God. It is natural for a man to desire a woman, but we need to constrain that natural desires within the guidelines that God's given us. It is unnatural for a woman to desire a woman and a man to desire a man. The body is not even created in any way to any way in a world be able to link those two up. And what God is saying is that it's an abomination before him. We need to continue to love those who are in any type of sexual behavior that's wrong while teaching them the truth. Why? Because the greatest act of love that we can share with one another is to share the truth. The easiest thing to do is to walk away from them and say, hey, you know what? Hey, that's your life, man. You do what you want to do. But let me tell you something about that. You know what? By walking away and not confronting it with the truth, you allow that person to continue to go down a road that is absolutely devastating to their life and in its end is destruction. How much do you love a person who is in, in the act of adultery? How much do you love a person who is guilty of homosexuality? You have to love them enough to confront them and say, look, man, you are going down the wrong road and your life will be destroyed. See, this isn't a matter of forming some lynch mob or whatever. It's a matter of loving people enough to confront them with the truth. Because it's only the truth that's going to set us free. That's it. Number five, congregational disapproval. This is interesting as you go through And uh, please look at the references that are noted on here because I don't have time to go through it. But one of the last consequences that I'd like to point out is that of congregational disapproval. And that means very simply that in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, you tell me what this means. Sometimes it's amazing to me. It's like you don't have to be a genius to know what it means. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone who calls himself a brother who is a fornicator or a covetous or adulterer or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are on the inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself that wicked person. What's he talking about? Basically two things. There are those who are in the church that are guilty of sexual behavior that's wrong, who claim to be Christians and continue to do what they want to do. 
There are those who are outside the church who were guilty of everything you can imagine. God says, hey, don't ignore those people. Don't stop spending time with those people because they need to know the truth. The problem with the people in the church is the people in the church have already heard the truth that Jesus will set you free from your sins and you need to trust him and walk in the flesh and walk in the spirit so you don't carry out the desires of the flesh. So what he's saying is for all of us who claim to be Christians, there's a whole different standard of accountability than there is for those of us who deal with non-Christians on a regular basis. And that standard is very simple. If you know of someone who is guilty of sexual immorality, and all of those things fall under that category, whether it's adultery, whether it's single people that are having sex outside of marriage, whether it's incest, whether it's rape. And you know what's fascinating to me? It's like not many of us would deliberately hang around somebody who's a known rapist, continues to rape, and continues to rape even when they're confronted and say, well, hey, man, that's your choice. That's okay. Or that would, would be guilty of incest or guilty of molestation. But now we've got to this point where we're growing a little more tolerant of things like adultery, a little more tolerant of things like homosexuality, a little more tolerant of single people who are having sex outside of marriage. You know, see, we, we, we've, grown, we've grown to become a little more tolerant to that. There are still some things, thank God, that we're not tolerant to at all. But the reality of it is we shouldn't tolerate any of it because it's all on the same level and all on the same plane in the Word of God. That's all the same. And so what he's saying is if you know someone who's single who's having sex outside of marriage, God has this advice to you. Hey, you know what? When you confront them, if they continue to do what they're doing, you shouldn't have anything to do with them. Oh, man, that's so judgmental. Absolutely. That's supposed to be. So that's good. If you say that, then you're picking up on this. It's, you know, it's judgmental. Is it not judgmental? Absolutely. What's the purpose of it? What's the purpose of saying, look, unless you change your behavior, I can't have anything to do with you? Thank you. The purpose is so they'll change their behavior. That's all it's for. Not to reap any more consequences upon them. Not to reap additional guilt and feelings of, of inferiority or not to feel like you're better than they are or any of that kind of garbage. The reason that God says remove yourself from that person is that they will feel the withdrawal of fellowship from other believers. They will recognize what they maybe didn't recognize because they're too close to it, and that is that their behavior is wrong before God, and they will repent from it. They'll agree that it's wrong. They'll repent, they'll turn from it, and they'll begin to live right again. That's the purpose of it. Nothing else. Because sin is against God, not against you or I. We're not judge, we're not God, we're not Lord, but we are required, according to the Word of God, to be God's judges here on earth in the ways that He has ordained in His Word. You know people living together that are Christians? Hey man, I don't know what to tell you, but until we work something out, you come live with me, you get, we'll work something out, but you know what, I just can't keep hanging out with you, we can't keep going out to dinner, we can't pretend like nothing's wrong in your life. Because what you're doing is absolutely wrong before God. That's why he says, don't even go to dinner with them. Don't even eat with them. Don't be their buddies anymore. Now again, this isn't to form some witch hunt of people's personal lives, but you know what? You and I know, because a lot of us don't know what's going on in other people's lives in this room or any other room. But you've got friends, and you've got people that God has put into your company, and you know what's going on in their life, and you're responsible to help being used by God to dictate to them the truth of the Word of God so that they will live lives that are pleasing before God. Because why? Because you care enough about them to keep them from having to go through all these stupid consequences. That's all. Simple, huh? Why don't we do it then? Because we've been led to believe it's a matter of accepting one another. You know, who am I? I can't judge. I, you know, I'm not perfect. 
hey, well, you know what? That's fine. Because whatever area you're struggling in in your life, maybe the person that's struggling in a sexual area in their life, you know, if you help them through their struggles in their sexual area, maybe they can help you in your struggle with your temper or your struggle with, the, you know, your, your, you know, the bad habit of lying or your struggle with whatever else you're struggling with. See, that's the way this ought to work. We're to help one another, to encourage one another, to, to uphold one another, to lift one another up. We're to help one another out. None of us are perfect. That's why we need a Savior. You see how this all ties in together? I mean, these are all the consequences. And the other consequence of everybody showing up late all the time is that I run out of time. So listen to me, and listen to me good. <laughs> Next week, just want to remind you that our class starts at 845. And there's like seven people that know that because they're the same seven people that are here every week. Now, all the rest of you are just kind of figuring it out. Now, if you want to give me the time that I need to do this stuff right, get here at 8.45 so that Mike has plenty of time to sing. We can give you announcements about things that are going on, and then we can get to this and do it right. So now you've got to come back again next week so that we can deal with, hey, is there any hope through this whole mess? See, we have saw the characteristics of seduction, what leads us into wrong sexual behavior. We see the consequences of sexual behavior that's wrong before God. And the question that you have to ask yourself and the challenge that you have to look at is, you know what, is there any hope for a society that is hell-bent on destroying itself in the way that it expresses itself sexually? Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, we've got some real problems in this area and it doesn't take a genius to figure it out. Headlines in yesterday's newspaper, what was it? The, t the uh, tail hook convention in Las Vegas. What's that all about? Sexual misconduct. Man, you can't go a day without reading the paper or listening on the news about some other problem in society that revolves around moral decisions as far as sex is concerned. If you want to have help in this area and you struggle with this area, the challenge is going to be to come back next week to find out what God has to say in His Word. Not only does He understand us, but He also offers us hope. And that's the most important session, and you don't want to miss that. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this opportunity to candidly look at what we all know to be true. What's amazing, God, is that we can see the evidence all throughout society. We recognize that everything that you say is true. We shake our heads in affirmation. And yet, somehow or another, we don't want to believe that it's you that's ordained all of this, that you know anything about us. Somehow we don't want to recognize that uh, you are really the source of the consequences. Despite what everyone would believe about you just being a loving God, the reality is that not only do you love us, but you judge wrong behavior. And the fact that you judge wrong behavior is because you do love us. God, help us to see this truth. Help us to see how our moral decay is destroying our society. Not only is it destroying society, it's destroying churches. It's destroying the credibility of even your word as we deviate from your standards and what you clearly express. God, help us to see we need to get back to the truth because it's your truth that will set us free from all of this confusion and, and the, the, the uh, fact that we're adrift as a nation. God, may we turn to you. May we humble ourselves. May we pray. May we look to you that you could restore us once again. God, help us each individually to be challenged by what you have to say, to begin today to conform to the standard that you've laid out. God, we just thank you for it. We thank you that it's so clear that you, we can't mistake. We can't walk away and say we don't understand what you have to say. Maybe what you say just isn't acceptable in our personal lives, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. God, we just thank you for this time. We ask that you would just bless us all, that you would continue to enlighten us through, through your word, and that we could be open to listen to the challenges that you have laid out. 
And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.